Good day, my friends, and welcome to the Craig Shapiro Tennis Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by the legendary Sergio Tacchini, the brand made famous by Martina Hingis, John McEnroe, and Gabriella Sabatini. Check them out at SergioTacchini.com and use my code CRAIG30 in all caps to receive 30% off of your order. He grew up on the east side of Los Angeles and distinguished himself as the strength and conditioning coach for the 1991 UNLV Running Rebels basketball team. It was there he met Andre Agassi and the rest is history. The guru Gil Reyes is today's guest. My man, are you in your facility? Is that where you're at? Right here in, in the trenches, right here in the in the nuts and bolts, man, of the of the whole thing. I'm here in my gym, yes. And those trophies I see behind you are I gotta imagine those are Andres. How great is that? Um yeah, that's that's it right there, Craig. That's our story. Behind me, there's uh, four Australian opens, there's two US opens, there's a Wimbledon, and there's a French open. And right dead in the center, that's, there's that Olympic gold medal. Yeah, there's a whole lot, a whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears into each one of those. Yes. God, that's incredible, man. Um, <laughs> uh, the gentleman you hear is the longtime, you'll have to explain it, but I would say friend, confidant, trainer, and, and guru, really, for, for Team Agassi, Gil Reyes. Thank you, Craig. How, uh, my man, uh, you know, we've we've talked uh, in length once um, when I uh, put together the documentary on yeah. Andre for the Tennis yeah. Channel a while, long time ago. And um, my man, you're pretty timeless. You kind of look the same. I feel like that was a long time ago. <laughs> well, thank you, Craig. And yes, that was a long time ago. Yes. And you and I go way back and you were there. You were right there on the inside. On the inside, <laughs> well, just kind of you saw most of it, uh, the way it unfolded. You were on the inside. I, I had a good piece, so I had a good moment, but I'm um, not like certainly um, different than than you. But I definitely had that moment for certain. Um, so listen, man, we do a five set format. Uh, the first set is the off the court report. Um, my question to you is, you know, when did where were you and when did you basically lock down and how have you spent the last it's 13 weeks i believe now well when it happened when the news broke of course there were kind of a few of the let's say rumblings on on the tour but it so happened just before indian wells so i actually had fernando verdasco here training with me in las vegas and i had Jeannie bouchard uh here in las vegas training with me at the time and of course with Fernando, it was all about uh, getting getting ready for Indian Wells. And um, Jeannie, you know, just really, literally, we all know what she's capable of. And she's just kind of made the commitment. So we were just locked down. We were ready to go. And then, of course, the news broke. And, of course, uh, Fernando was told that it was time to kind of get back home because the travel was going to uh, really, really take some big twists and turns as we knew it. So when it was official that Indian Wells was was canceled, they still didn't know because there was a chance that uh, Miami might take place. So all that uncertainty, it was about a two week gap there um, where we really didn't even know. We knew Indian Wells was not going to happen, but we just didn't know anything else. So we were all, nobody was ready for this, at least not, certainly not that I know of. And um, then it came time, Jeannie Bouchard has made um, her move. She lives here now. 
so in her case, it's been a matter of through all this, of course, understanding and learning the the quarantine protocols and this, the distancing and everything. But uh, we're lucky here, Craig, because Andre and I put together our own private training center uh, that he used. And Andre, of course, was always been so great about it, welcoming the the other athletes that, that have followed. So in a sense, we really didn't get much of a beat in the training aspect, but there's a lot we needed to learn, what to do, what not to do. Um, and I, I train uh, athletes from different sports. So I've been busy and yet learning more, the more my, I guess my premise to the whole thing, Craig, is every athlete that walks in through, through these doors in my gym has something that, that they need, reason why they're here. But there's something that I can learn from every athlete. So it actually has been new for everybody. What are we going to do? And, and Craig, I don't think we still know, right? If when we're going to ball out next, what the tour is going to be like in 2020, if at all. So every day is a bit of a question mark. And we just kind of have to know that we're doing what we can do and controlling what we can and getting ready for what's coming. And how about you, though, now? Were you, do you get depressed? Do you keep your, were you afraid of getting sick? Do you know people who got sick? I was, I was concerned and, and certainly frightened is a fair word because, yeah, I mean, we, no one has been through this before. And it just hit. And especially a city like Las Vegas, uh, my home, we, it was a big punch in the nose all over. So, yeah, I, the, let's say the, not recluse, but certainly the withdrawal from everything that we knew in terms of interactions. So I was concerned, scared, and I guess pretty close to um, a level or two next to depression of saying, wow, this, I don't know what to do. So uh, yeah, but we, we, we shook that off. I think two or three weeks into it uh, is when we decided, okay, within our con confines and controls, we kind of, let's get back in stride. And that's what I've done. Um, right, the beat don't stop. You just got to keep it moving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's move into our second set. This is our on the court report, and that's really the business side of things um, now that there's no tennis really being played. First and foremost, can you explain the, the Genie um, relationship? I've known Genie for a long time. I, I was with Adidas previously, and right. she was one of our Adidas athletes that came here. We had, we had, it was so great. That's Fernando Verdasco started coming here. And of course, Grigor, Dimitrov, Jeannie Bouchard, uh, they all came through here. Um, Angelique Kerber, uh, Simona Holop. It was just kind of a great, great traffic through here. So with Jeannie, we all have seen that rise and it was a wonderful rise. And then we saw the struggles that, uh, I'm not sure that anyone is necessarily you look back at careers and even the greatest ones, let's say, the ones that we consider the greatest, when you look back, I'm not sure we've seen any perfect trajectory in a career. And so Jeannie, the last couple of years has struggled a bit to regain that, I guess, that form. And so she made a move. She made a commitment to come back. So I've known her for a long time. I just had not worked with her for quite a few years. Uh, but then we discussed it and uh, little did we know that this, uh, the quarantine was going to allow us to really get in the trenches and work hard. So I've known her a while and I have complete faith that she is going to regain that form and, and, and make some pretty good, some pretty good stories happen. Hey, listen, I mean, she got to five. So, I mean, that's no yeah. joke. Um, right. right. <laughs> um, yeah, she can play. Gil, how, uh, you know, how, um, 
impactful was the accident she had at the U.S. Open to, you know, really the, you know, the drop-in results. Can you speak to that? Well, yeah, and not knowing all of the details, because I still had not, let's say, reconnected with, reconnected with her when it happened. It was, you sensed, I believe it was right before the third round of the U.S. Open. So you sense, okay, wait a minute, there's, there's a good form coming here, perhaps a little, we, we all know, Craig, how important momentum is in a sport. Because momentum kind of gets and begets more confidence. And we know that you need it in the sport. So there were a few other things that she needed to address and, and sort out and iron out. So, yeah, that was really unfortunate, the way it happened and the fact that it happened at all. But I think at this point here, you have to go back even a little further because it was, it was the, the struggle and there's nothing like confidence in our sport. And I kind of get to tell that story a little bit firsthand because ourselves with Andre, it's pretty well known that we took, we took some pretty significant, I guess, falls or one big significant fall along the way. And I'm so blessed to be able to say that he fought his way through. Uh, and I still look at him sometimes with so much respect and awe of saying, you did it, dude. You did it, man. There was absolutely, you had no traction. Your trajectory, it was in question. And you, meaning just by his own will and determination and talent, of course, he, he pulled it out and made it a beautiful story. And and I'm actually hoping the same for Jeannie, that she can really just get her momentum, her confidence, and regain that form and trajectory. And like I say, get back out there in the courts and do some good. And, you know, we had Michael, I've had Michael Joyce on the show. Um, and he said that she's no joke, that she worked hard, that she worked uh, hard with him. Absolutely, yes. Those of us who have worked with her, it's something we all have in common. But our reactions are always, yeah, she's, she's a baller, man. She'll, she goes to work. She comes in here every time ready to work. And I can't just say that about everybody. Of course, my standard is pretty high. Having been around Andre, he set the bar pretty high for me to be able to assess and say, now, this, this dude's for real, man. And those that say, yeah, okay. Yeah, he's talented, but okay. All right. But with Jeannie, say, no, she's, she's for real. She comes in here ready to work. And if a few things just come together, um, as we are hoping and praying, she's going to be okay. She seems cool, man. I th I hope that she, um, you know, I, 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 I have to assume based on where she's trained and who she's training with that she's going to be fit. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I hopefully that I imagine you're going to, like you said, sort of help her with that confidence maybe issue. Um, and you and what you probably I imagine what you would do is you you look back on your experience, right? And, and, and help to yeah. help to push that through. Well, on the court, just three days ago or so, she's out there on the court with Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf. I'm sitting in awe the whole time, the whole time. I should have been learning more, but I was in awe of watching Andre and Steffi on the court with Jeannie. And Jeannie, what she said, I was shaking the whole time. She says, just because we all know what they have accomplished and the way they, they reached their, their particular, let's say, um, apexes or their, their places in the game. And she is out there taking it all in. And with myself, I learned from Andre, you can do your best teaching by learning, listen. So myself, I spent a lot of time, Craig, listening to her, just too many times we as coaches, me and in in our particular, let's say, group, 
we do more teaching than we do learning. And I think that's a problem. I, I think we need to do more learning and then do some teaching. Sometimes it's my system, my philosophy can't go, man. I, I think it's a different day. I think we're training a different mind athlete. We, I think we're training a different characteristics or let's say, I, I don't know what, how to call it other than compartments in their learning of what's what they're exposed to you you're just training a different kid and i don't say that disrespectfully and they're different they're just different from my dinosaur generation so i do a lot of listening and we don't train them the same because they're not the same yeah, andre taught me that we can't train them the same because they're not the same and Jeannie is one of those that she's going to do the work andre is one of those that don't preach to him don't tell him stuff tell him what it is he's about to do tell him how to do it but most importantly tell him why and after that he's ready he's all in he's, he's all in all you got to do secretariat's a, a jockey once said that his biggest job was just to hold on and not fall off right uh, everything else you leave it up to secretariat with the great with andre all i kind of did was open the doors to the gym and let him let him come in and do his work and get out of his way but that's only part of the story um he would explain things that maybe others don't see. Um, I read in Racket Magazine, um, Jerry Nathan's article, that you talked specifically about Andre saying, you said to him, well, um, um, you're moving better. And he said, no, 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 I'm stopping better. That was, that was beautiful. That was but, beautiful. But, that was, but, but so, so you must have a different perspective 25 years later on the how you evaluate yeah yeah you have to you have to you have to become the student and then once again andre taught me as well as teachers there's inspiration information and application without all three we are merely regurgitators of data we're just regurgitating data we're just passing along what we learned in coaching class and we think that's coaching First, inspiration, not, not just inspiring the player, but are you inspired? Because a player, just like when you go to a good restaurant and that, that's, the server is just not having a good day, it's going to affect your meal. You kind of know that, wait a minute, something's, you're kind of, it's a bad vibe. Well, when your athlete comes to you, they need to see that you have that fire that you're asking of them. But then comes the information. Is it, is it good information? Is it, are, you, are you really accurate in information? And then number three is application. How does it apply to me? And so, yes, with Andre, so many times I did learn that it wasn't, there's many guys, let's say, if you're going at side to do side, getting there is pretty cool, but now you got to get back. And so, so that's what he used to teach me in the weight room. He says, get in there quickly, I'm fine with that. Only problem is if I get there and get it over and it comes back across the net, I've got to stop and come back. And am I efficient when you look now, when you look at, let's say, a Roger Federer, Watch him going from ad side to do side and, and back. It's just literally that ballet of his, right? Bends his knees, sinks his hips, strikes, finishes, follows through with his shot, uh, as, as one should. But then you see just the body. All of a sudden, there goes that dance. He's back in position. He's not locking out his knees, which is going to hurt his knees and hips over the long run. So that's what Andre taught me all the time to say, okay, getting there is, is, is cool. That's just half my, my problem. Teach me how to get back out of there what muscles do i need to strengthen to be really effective and efficient getting out of their point after point so yeah 
it's a beautiful, beautiful learning opportunity for us, the coaches, to learn. And to bring that back to Jeannie, would it be fair to say you are basically spent these last, however long it's been, 13 weeks, working on strength, agility, movement? Athlete, athlete. We all in tennis, all of us in tennis, we know there's a certain aspect, component to the sport. We get it. The great ones are great. But every now and then, guys like you and I, Craig, will say, what if Russell Westbrook learned to play tennis really well? What if Kawhi Leonard, of course, LeBron? What, if, what is it? There's a certain level of athleticism that in our sport you can so easily visualize. So with Jeannie, we spend so much time, not in the mundane, not in the typical, let's say, prototypical comp uh, components of training. It's as an athlete, more quicker, more explosive, more agile more everything more powerful because you become that better athlete and so we spend a lot of time with athleticism we were lucky most people know that at one point of our career Andre and I went down to Houston to train with Carl Lewis hmm. and it's no to me anyway it's no accident or mystery because they as athletes taught me so much that was outside of the realm of, of tennis and it's no in my opinion it's no mystery a few weeks later, Andre won Wimbledon, and that was our first slam championship. We were there in, in, in 1992 in Houston with Carl Lewis. A few weeks later, he wins Wimbledon, our first slam victory, because our training took on that different sense of purpose, focus, objective. What are you going to accomplish today? Are you just training? Is it a workout day? How dissimilar are you to a PE class, a Zumba class, whatever? And so I learned from them, Carl Lewis and his team and his coaches there, we as coaches who train athletes, and this obviously pertains to Jeannie, but I learned it from Andre and that experience with Carl Lewis. When training athletes, are we building them up or beating them up? Careful, because it looks the same. And I just sit there and say, wow, it does. We, we think we're building them up. We might be beating them up. It looks the same. Now, what is the difference? I don't know. Every coach needs to find it. With each, end, with each athlete, it's different individually. So with Jeannie, we push her, push her, push her, push her. And then just right at that point, I have to realize when it's time to, okay, back off a little bit, because now you're getting ready to push her off the, off the cliff. And those are the components of teaching. Are you building them up or beating them up? Careful, because it looks the same. Let's move into the third set. This is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Okay. Um, my man, I, well, I, I gotta be honest with you, you're kind of a mystery to me. Um, I know you're from East LA. Uh, where yeah. does your Where does your story begin? Well, that's interesting because most it was very, very typical in those days. Once again, uh, growing up, um, are you I from High? Are you, I'm sorry, are you from Highland Park? Are you from where are you from? Uh, that's a little further. There's that little place growing up, and it's the area called Boyle Heights. And then after that, we moved as a family. Um, and we moved a little further in, and we were in a place called Frogtown. Uh, My man, that's that's where all the hipsters live now, baby. That's where all <laughs> we the were, that's where all the hot shots live. We were down the hill from uh, the Dodger Stadium at the time. Before, of course, it was Elysian Park and Chavez Ravine. That's what it was called there uh, in those days. So you grew so up in a Mexican a Mexican family on the east side of LA. Absolutely, absolutely. I 
Spanish was something, it was a notion uh, to me of existence. English was a discomfort, very much a discomfort. I, I, I tell Andre many times still, I think in Spanish, I cry in Spanish, I laugh in Spanish because that's all that I knew. So in those days, there was a big mist, a big fog, a big blur. Our environment was our universe. We never left our environment. So I, from there, I ended up, picture this, at University of California at Santa Barbara. Let me just dial back just a second. Uh, who was your mom and your dad? Uh, do you have brothers and sisters? How did you, you grow up? Thank you, Craig. Uh, my mom is Alicia Reyes, and she... Yeah, that's my rock, man. That's my rock. I lost my father five years ago, Rito Reyes. And he was, once again, we were, we grew up actually in an area in New Mexico and it was called Stallman Farms. We grew up in the mornings. If you ever get a chance, I still cry when I see McFarland USA. If you get a chance, watch that movie. Uh, and Kevin Costner is, is stars in it. It's a story about those, that cross country team in Northern California. Uh, McFarland, USA, in, in the valley up there, Agricultural Valley. In Stallman Farms in those days, it was considered the largest pecan orchard in the world. Well, we lived there in the mornings before school. We were taken in a bus. You go pick pecans. Certain times of the year, it was picking cotton or tomatoes or lettuce or onions. You, the same bus takes you to school. You go to school. After school, you get back on the fields and you go to work. And that's what we knew. That it wasn't all wow doing. No, that's what we do. That's what that's your reality. And then in high school, uh, I mean, going going through all that, we then moved to East LA. And then I met a coach. As once again, what a hopefully a common thing with all of us. One person can change and turn your life. And I had a coach in high school at John Marshall High School, Coach Milt Davis. And may he rest in peace as well. But things that he said, I used to say, hey, coach, I need to help my family. He says, well, if you really want to help your family, get an education and get them out of here. He said, get them out of here. He said, do something and help your family. And that was my story. Because next thing I know, I hated school, but I loved learning. I love learning. And, and what sport was this coach? And football, high, high school football. He had been a Milt Davis. He had been an All-American at UCLA as a defensive back. Then he had been NFL Defensive Rookie of the Year, I believe, in 1957 uh, with the Baltimore Colts in those days, uh, Milt Davis. Amazing. And, yeah, what a man, everything you did. I wanted – there was my thug life, and then there was me wanting his approval, me so believing were, in him. So that's true, man. You were a gang – banger you were uh you were uh you were um you you came from sort of a hard scrabble background yeah, that's, that's all we knew that's all we knew i mean and that's who we were you're everyone around you as you looked around no one had it many better than you no one seemed to have it any worse than you uh we all knew we went without and uh that's just the way it was and we didn't at this point here we weren't upset about it we didn't pout we just knew that, okay, you got to dig in. And my mom, Alicia, would teach us. She'd say hey, to me and, and my siblings, she'd say, we're not poor. We just don't have any money, but we're not poor. You, have, you guys have to get an education. That's something that can't be denied or taken from you or ignored is that you're educated people. So uh, like I say, next thing I know, I was at University of California, Santa Barbara, loving just loving education, just loving learning. And that love for reading uh, continues today. So you got yourself um, 
through high school, clearly. Um, you played sports. You went to UCSB. What was that experience like for you? I loved it. Well, interestingly, it was my, my generation. If you look back at the history there in Santa Barbara, and I say this, we have earnest discussions here in my gym because we have athletes from different sports that come in here. Volleyball, golf, and uh, baseball, of course, Andre's son. And we all have talks in here about what's going on these days in our, in our country, in our world. And I talk about my day, it was the Vietnam era. And at University of California, Santa Barbara, the little college town is named Isla Vista. Uh, and its part is the little college community that surrounds University of California, Santa Barbara, Goleta, et cetera. Well, the year before I got there, they had had riots on campus. They had burnt down the ROTC building, uh, which was, of course, military extension, reserve officer training corps. Uh, the students there, it was so it was, I hate to use the term hippie, but that, I guess that's what they were called. And in those days, they had uh, burnt the Bank of America building. And that's when I was so, I talked to our current young people about that. And that experience to me, was even that was learning because you look back now and say what I thought then, would I think the same now? What I thought was maybe they were wrong. I look back, wow, maybe they were right about certain things that were going on. It was a great education, not, in the, not just in the classroom. Those are uh, my professors, my education at University of California, Santa Barbara was literally the, the shining jewel in, in my experiences going forward because that prepared me not just to learn but to question to always ask why and i learned to question and so when i met andre and i saw that tremendous not just curiosity his level of intellect of no he he wanted to learn he wanted to know so you don't just tell him something teach him something and in doing so he taught me how to learn then he taught me how to teach and so i believe that i, that I was prepared for that by my experience at university of california in santa barbara so are you a UCSB graduate? Did you finish there? Yes. yes you finished. Absolutely, yes. Yes, and what and did you graduate uh in fitness? Are you uh did you come were you a fitness expert coming out of there? No. 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 In those in those days, everybody, once again, especially in that time, you had yeah. kinesiology was not a curriculum then. Meaning kinesiology, it, yeah. It, it was not an accredited curriculum. There was exercise physiology, but to all of us in those days, what seemed to be the I guess the common thread was political science and political science, man, you can have your other aptitudes. And, and I certainly did, but yeah, political science, man, because that, that just seemed to be in the, at the time, not that we were being pushed there, but we were invited to, to get a grip as they said, just get a, get a hold of what's going on around you. And I did. So yeah, yeah, that was, that's my, my hang on a second. So you're, you're a political science graduate. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely. I am too, man. So, so after you finished college, what happened to you? I mean, well, the, your story always begins at UNLV, but I knew there was something else going on in there. So I just wanted, I'm curious. Yeah. And I'll, yeah, I will very gladly. You just mentioned those four letters, man. UNLV, that just puts a nice song in my heart. But yeah, I just began learning, let's say the crap. They didn't have really strength coaches there for every football program. It was usually one of the big guys, usually the offensive line coach, would take the guys in the weight room and say, let's go get them in there and just kind of work them out. It was not the industry that it is today or the science, but I just kind of gravitated to it. I, I loved it. I learned it. I knew that for myself, it was 
very much a necessity. It was something that was important to me, but I also saw how prevalent injuries were. You almost expected injuries. You almost, if I'm training, yeah, my shoulders are bad. Hey, I did some squats, I blew out my knees. I did some deadlifts, blew out my back. Did some bench pressing, blew out my shoulders. That was just a very common expectation. So I just decided, no, let me study this a little more. And I just continued more and more and more studying the craft itself. And let's say my own volition, of course, but I'm not sure that I had any further incentives on what that would lead to, but I certainly loved it. And I knew that I could put it into good practice. And little by little, uh, I was having opportunities to train athletes. And then I was uh, at New Mexico State University uh, working with the programs there and with the athletes there at, at New Mexico State University. And then Next thing I know, somehow or other, through answered prayers, I ended up at UNLV, man. Ended up there working with as the head strength and conditioning coach at UNLV. Yes. And was that um, uh, across a bunch of sports, or was that just the basketball? It was, it was everything, huh? It was everything. When you're the head strength and conditioning coach for the university, you're responsible for all of the teams, all of the programs, and you have graduate assistants who – Two or three of them will, will take care of this sport. You're the overseer. You have to kind of develop and set up the, the, the programs because, of course, different sports, different emphasis on their training. But you have one, one or two of your assistants working with the softball team, another one with the track team, another one with the volleyball team. But you're the overseer. And then, of course, I was involved with football, which I love. There's some great names there at UNLV. Uh, Everybody remembers Icky Woods and the Icky Shuffle there as a running back. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, you, you, trained Icky, you trained Icky Woods? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, That's yes. incredible, Gil. Yeah, he, yeah, he was, of course, I remember that rookie year, Super Bowl, Cincinnati Bengals. For our, for our international listeners that might for our sorry, Gilly, for, for our international listeners, Icky Woods had a, a very short but very badass moment in the NFL. And he had a dance he did called the Icky Shuffle. Uh, look it up if you uh, – look it up on uh, YouTube. It's, it's an easy find. Sorry. Uh, yeah, so he's one of my favorite stories because at UNLV – because then, of course, at UNLV, the basketball program paid the bills. The basketball program really kept that university's athletic program going because we were pretty good. But my experience, let's say, uh, Keenan McCardell and a few of the other players that played in the NFL, but Icky – was one of those guys that over the summer, Keenan uh, McCardle. Keenan McCardle was there too. Yes, he, yeah, he had a great he career. Sure he was did. a great player. He sure did. Yeah, Steve Smith and Keenan McCardell at Jacksonville. Yeah. At Jacksonville. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. So okay. these, those are those are my guys, and I worked with them every day and learned so much from them. And Icky was one of those that I just felt he's different. He's different, but there's something in there. He wants this so bad. And his senior year, of course, he led the nation in rushing. It was a battle all year with him and Craig Ironhead Hayward at University of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And Icky won the national rushing title that year and, of course, was drafted by the Bengals. And so they were my guys. And then the Coach Tarkanian asked me to take a little more, uh, let's say, take over the basketball completely. And we did. And that led me to Larry Johnson and Stacy Ogman, Greg Anthony. And so, yeah, it's, it's been and, a What about Anderson Hunt? What about my man Anderson Hunt? Anderson Hunt from Southwestern High School in Detroit, Michigan. <laughs> that's a Gil, that's an incredible story, man. Yeah, Craig, you, went from, you went from East LA, Frogtown. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
yes. to Craig. to the running rebels, man. Craig, I'm just I'm just a blessed, lucky guy that as long as I keep stumbling, just stumble <laughs> forward. That's my Billy. Really, what was forward. what was it like to be around Jerry Tarkanian and that basketball team? Because I mean, that's one of the most bad to the bone groups that ever took a basketball court. Now were they now were they partying every night till the break no, of dawn? No. No. They were they were no. young guys. So of course young guys and all of a sudden we took into account. Jerry Tarkinian, of course, may he rest in peace. He was our head coach, but there was a coach that named Tim Gergerich. That to me, that's the coaching template right there. If you if you're just around Coach Gergerich enough, you're gonna learn how to coach. Tim Gergerich. Gergerich. Gergerich, okay. yes, the best. The best coaching let's say methods and 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 ways i've ever been around he's just he he just is to me in my mind he's he's the he's the template and so i learned so much from him on how you get the best of each player but please remember they're different because we had moses scurry from brooklyn moses we had larry John yeah larry johnson of course from dallas he, we we were fortunate to get him out of odessa junior college but he was from dallas uh, David Butler from Washington, D.C., 6'11", and, of course, Stacy Ogman from California, Pasadena. But, Craig, it was special because – What about Greg Anthony? What about Greg Anthony? Greg Anthony, Greg Anthony from Las Vegas. Yeah, from Las Vegas. He was special all the time. You just knew Greg was different. Greg was different because you talk about special. That was – he was mature beyond his years. He, he, he got it. He got it as a college athlete. He understood his role not only on the team – but he was around guys like Larry uh, Johnson and Stacey and Ogman. But one more time for our listeners, you know, we're talking about, you know, basketball from 1990, but yes. you know, this is really the marks, the moment of like the first almost like professional, this, these, this, this team, this UNLV team took, took the, took college basketball to another uh, trajectory, another level. Yeah. Uh, they were electrifying, and um, you were the strength coach, and that's just incredible. And yeah, did was, did I was did, the head strength coach? So I got to ask you one last one question about it. Um, where do you keep your ring? You got to have a ring. Where's the ring? In the house. In the house. Very very safe and secure. Yes. You got the championship ring in the house. Yeah, very okay. safe. And secure. Okay. Now what what happened? What Andre just rolled into the facility? Well, that's literally how it worked. Of course, Andre was born and raised in Las Vegas. So yeah. he, he had Prodigal a he son. Had, yeah, he had an appreciation for the running rebels. We at our Thomas and Macarena, we sold it out every game. We had a thing around the court side that was called Gucci Row because all the celebrities that came into town to perform and you couldn't get a ticket. We were sold out every night. That's the year, of course, our championship year. We beat Duke by 30 points in the national championship game. It was just a special team. So Andre, when he came into my gym, I was when he came in, I had the running rebels in there in the gym when he came walking in at UNLV. And Andre, we just asked a young man who knew that he was he knew he was good. He knew what he felt inside, but he just didn't feel like disconnected with how he wished to apply physicality. And of course we did. It was no secret when you were gonna play against us tie your shoes up a little tighter because we're coming. We're coming. We're, we're, it's going to be a throwdown for, for both of those halves. And he liked that. that. That resonated with Andre. He wanted to play that kind of tennis 
And when Andre goes to show you his, not just his intellect, but his instincts, kind of like a great stockbroker, I told him, I said, Andre, I don't know a thing about tennis, which of course I didn't. And he explained to me how the game is about to change. When I started with Andre, of course, John McEnroe, Jimmy Connors, uh, Bjorn Borg, those are great champions. No matter what era, those guys are going to find a way to be champions because they are. But it was a different sport. And he said to me, there's guys like Boris Becker, there's guys like Yvonne Lendl, guys like that. It's a different sport. He said, these guys are getting bigger and the game is going to change. Kind of like what Wayne Gretzky said, right, Craig? You don't go where the puck is, you go where the puck is going to be. And that was Andre, because he said, the sport's going to change. These guys are going to hit harder. And of course, it so happens, that's when technology came into tennis. The strings, the rackets themselves, graphite, the strings, everything was going to up the RPMs on, on, on the tennis courts. It was going to rev the motors quite a bit more. And Andre anticipated that. And he said, I need to move better. I need to be stronger. I need to be more explosive. And so he was telling me exactly what he needed and, in a sense, invited me to, to qualify, invited me to know enough to help him. Yes. And when he walked in, it just so happens he liked, he would see the running rebels in there and he would see that we weren't working out like a PE class or a punishment boot camp. Each guy was different. So we were training each guy differently. And what do you, what do you just buy out your contract and say, listen, you're with me now, brother. We got we got <laughs> let's go do this. That's pretty close to how it, <laughs> that was pretty close to how it played out. Yeah. You just, he took you out of there and you got, you resigned and that's <laughs> the rest is history, huh? For me, that was a blessing. What a blessing in my life because, yes, and it was so, the way it happened and it happened so quickly. And yet, if you can imagine the coaching union, the coaching brotherhood uh, through all NCAA sports, it's a tight one. Everybody knows everybody. So the word gets out. No, we're number one in the country. We're national. <laughs> and, and the word gets out that I'm leaving UNLV and you're going to do what? Going to tennis. What? <laughs> of course. What do you know about tennis? Nothing. Perfect. Nice going. So I should be right. You should have me at every job fair to explain the logical sequencing of, of progress. But yeah, I, I had never, I promise you, I had never seen a tennis match. Never seen. So the number one team in the country, I had never seen a tennis match. Next thing I know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the road with Andre Agassi. I always say, there's, you know, there's Muhammad Ali, there's Mike Tyson, there's John McEnroe, and there ain't a lot of people in the world who don't know who Andre Agassi was. How, how um, hard was being in charge of his protection? It evolved because none of that, of course, was anticipated by me. He was a teenager when I started with him now. So it evolved. So therefore, my love for him and my protective instincts kind of followed it it evolved and when, when you see him next ask him sometime we we took a drive because he was going to play if you remember that tournament in scottsdale so we were taking a drive there he was we, he was just driving his car we were driving to scottsdale that tournament they used to have there yeah. the princess there yeah and we're driving there so we stopped this is me just starting literally just starting with andre and we went into a carl's jr a hamburger stand in in uh they're on our way. It was, I think it was, King, yeah, it was Kingman, Arizona. And we, we pulled in there. So I'm sitting there and we're in line and people kept coming up to him asking for his autograph. And I look, I promise you, he'll tell you this. I said, 
you're pretty famous, huh? And he just starts laughing because they recognize him at, at a burger stand in Kingman. Little did we, did I know. So yes, the security became paramount because his, his, um, his recognition, his stardom, and that can't be argued, it can't be denied. His star was shining very, very brightly and broadly. We would be in, uh, one year in, in Stockholm, Sweden, he was playing a tournament and he was hungry so late and I were sitting in a little diner late at night. One car every 10 minutes would pass by. We're sitting there, he had an uh, overcoat on, a trench coat, he had his cap on, he had the collar pulled up, we're sitting there eating. A car passes by with some girls and you hear, Agassi, Agassi, Stockholm, Sweden. It, in the middle of the night, a little rundown diner. And I just kept looking at him and said, yeah, okay, here we go. This is something big. So we began enlisting the assistance of some specialists who are the best at what they did. And we just kind of, I was the guy that because Andre's, I believe, I, his trust, as I continued to earn his trust, would at that point, I, I think, give credence to my suggestions or certainly my uh, recommendations on how what it would be best for him in, in his overall security and um, I'm so thankful to God to these days that it certainly worked out well. And by the way um, you can't be trying to uh, beat Pete Sampras, Boris Becker, Stefan, you can't beat those guys if you're, you got to worry about how you're walking from the hotel to the car to the practice courts. It's got to be you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all of those things we, they came together and I would do it again for him. And everything, yes, some things got very difficult. Um, tears, uncertainty, doubt, sadness, but we made it through. We made it through. And I hate to, I'm not throwing in Barry Manilow here, uh, as I <laughs> say, just arbitrarily. You get a chance to listen to a song, I Made It Through the Rain. Just listen to the words sometime because I look at Andre and I still tear up because everything, man. It, as you know, we took some good tumbles along the way and yet the guy never stopped fighting not once never gilly, stopped fighting gilly did you ever feel like you did a bad job um whether it was as a friend a coach uh a trainer did you ever think you were it was you who was messing it all up yes yes along the way there, there were those moments that i sometimes during a match Sometimes I would feel a deep pang inside of saying, I, looking back now, of course, as you're in the moment, should have done a little more of this, should have done a little more of that, a little less, all those things. And so, yes, deep pangs. And that, once again, that goes not from any kind of particular, let's say, obsessions. It was literally, I love the kid. I love how hard he was working. He believed, and I knew that I just, and number one, you, can't, you can never ask your athlete to do something better if you're not willing first to ask yourself to get better. And so, yes, and many times I did. I, I failed him, I fell short. And I told him so many times since then, Craig, that through his mercy, his, his grace in, in accepting my imperfections, that allowed me to, to learn more and to do a better job. But don't, definitely, Craig. And that's a, really, that's a yeah. great question to ask. Is there an example, of, is there a moment where you're like, man, you know, I was it, you know, maybe 1990 French, or was there a yeah. moment you said, man, you know what? I don't sure. really know what I'm doing. I got to get way better at this if we're going to rock. I'll share one. And I, I, unfortunately, I have to leave out the name of the opponent. It's okay. <laughs> but... 
I used to make him, and he was so great about it in his book about referring to gill water, the, the gill water, which is I used to make him his concoctions of electrolytes, minerals, enzymes, vitamins, protein, and carbs, uh, depending on, the, once again, the, 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 the conditions that day. Hot, he's going to sweat a lot. As we know, when you perspire, you don't just lose water. You're losing electrolytes and minerals. You're losing minerals from your body. And do you need your sodium, your magnesium, your pet, your potassium, um, all of these things. You're just what's going on with, with the body. And I wasn't as sharp as I should have been on that subject. So one particular tournament, we go out and the, the, the pattern with Andre was, as you know, every tennis player, if you're going to, you never know what time it starts. If you're the second or third match on, you start when the previous match ends. Not, not a time, just when it ends. But you go out about an hour before what your anticipation is, and you hit. On the way back in, I would always hand him that drink. His, his electrolytes, minerals, carbohydrates, vitamins. I would hand it to him so he could drink it. So now he has a good hour, hour and a half, have it in the system before he goes out there. But this day, the condition's really tough, so I overmixed. Because I said, oh, I'm anticipating he's going to sweat a lot. So I put a little extra in there thinking that's really good. Okay, I can still, I go into shock right now, even thinking about it. We're coming back from the practice courts, back to the locker room, where he's going to sit now and get ready for it till the tournament referee comes in and calls you out. I reached in my bag. I handed it to him. I handed it to Andre. And as always, as obviously, thousand matches on the tour. I handed it to him, and he drank it, keeps walking, goes to drink it again, goes, yeah. Yeah, it just, it wouldn't come. It wouldn't stay. And he spitting it out my professional life flashed before me because it was a big match it was and i i can't add uh, as they say a uh, spoiler alert i can't add that it so happened that he won that match and i told him after the match you won this match in spite of me i said thank you i said thank you gilly because gilly you messed up the drink you messed up the drink i did and once again as well intended as it was you can't when it's when it's time to ball out no excuses, man. And you should have checked that out. And so my research into, there's this thing called ribose, of course, which is uh, in the B6s and all these things, recovery, energy, all these things, and the minerals and electrolytes. And that's when I felt I went, I was too, too simplistic without doing enough study as to the palatability of it for Andre, for my player. And yeah, he rejected it. And uh, so, yeah. And I wish I could say that was the only example. Let's just say that's the one that comes to mind, to mind. Yeah, there were many. Do you miss being out there the way you once were with that unique, unique, high-profile, badass situation? It was beautiful. And I missed that part of it, literally specifically tied with Andre. Because, once again, you were, you were there with us in, in the trenches in those days. It got pretty special, pretty exciting. When, when, when we're asked about the Australian Open, that one semis against Patrick Rafter at the Australian Open, the whole day, the country was so hot. And I just kept looking at Andre the whole day. And he was, I said, that's my boy. That's my boy. Just locked on. Everywhere we went. And of course, Patrick Rafter is rightfully so, so beloved in not just in Australia. They were, of course, from where he is, but all over the world. But it so happens we were in his country, semis, man, semis of the Australian Open. Yeah. And pressure. And I miss that because, and of course, Andre put on a, he put on a show that he brought it. It was a throwdown. Then, of course, the James Blake match at the U.S. Open. 
uh, the, when it was rocking, man, it was rocking. And just the way things go, I miss that a lot because you can, you can never duplicate that and knowing how much went into it because we all got to see the lights, the TV cameras. I would look around, Craig. I would look around at Arthur Ashe Stadium and see not an empty seat and hear the roar and I would get emotional. When he won the French Open, I was blown away that there, of course, at Roland Garros, we had tasted defeat there before. Man, it hurt. So when he wins the French Open Championship against Andre Medvedev on June 6, 1999, I'm looking down from where we were, and I see people every year that things didn't go our way. I would look down and see those very, very elegantly dressed people in these boxes right down there where the coaches box were. Elegant people dressed so nice. And you say, yeah, that figures they're in the best seats, just as sharp, so festive. And when things didn't go our way, I'd say, how could you be enjoying this so much? I felt so sad you were enjoying that. Yet those same people, when Andre won it, I'm looking down, they were crying. They were in tears. People said, but crying. And that's when I realized, ah, they love my boy. They love my boy too. And they were, they, everybody looking around, the atmosphere. Then of course, um, those great matches along the way. And then of course, that final match at Arthur Ashe Stadium there. And uh, when he retired, you're right in your assessment, Craig, that somehow a connection with people, a connection with the tennis fans was very, very, very unique and special. And the fans let him know. They let him know. And nothing everybody like that. There was nothing like yeah, that. Everybody, everybody was crying when we were leaving because that was our last time. We weren't coming back. Man, the he brought, people, he yeah, brought that, a lot of people along for that ride, boy. That's well said. That's well said. <laughs> and the, the, yeah. the uh, security people, the cafeteria people, as you know, at Arthur uh, Stadium now, when you walk out, there's that steps where you go up to the cafeteria. People from the cafeteria standing at that little landing there, clapping for Andre. And yeah, I, I miss that a lot. I will always treasure that, always. And there's times that I'm in here in my gym now, and he comes in and he's doing other things, talking to other people that I just stare at him and I look up at our trophies and stare at him again and I'm thankful. What a blessed, what a blessed, blessed journey. Let's move into our fourth set. This is the 10 ball scramble. We go fast. It's not a deep dive. I say it, you just say what comes into your mind, okay? All right. Jerry Tarkanian. Yeah, the dude. The dude, he knew how to he knew he knew how to handle very very special athletes. The dude, Nick Bolteri. He was the right guy at the right time for us. He was the right guy to have at the wheel, perfect time. He handled all the media that was going on around us better than anybody could. He saw there was a star about to shine brighter, and no one could have handled that better than Nick Bolteri. Perfect man, the right guy at the right time. Brad Gilbert. The guy, <laughs> BG, BG, he knows tennis inside out. That's a baller's coach. That's a baller's coach. He's he's going to get you ready. You're, he's not going to send you out there on the turf unprepared with your shoes untied. You're going to be ready to ball out with BG. Darren Cahill. Yeah, perfect, perfect disposition. The the fact that he, he had played, obviously coached Leighton Hewitt and played against us so many times, such a perfect understanding. Those two names, and I'll go a little longer, and I hope you don't mind. Andre was asked about those two names that you just mentioned, Brad Gilbert and Darren Cahill. Listen to this. One of my favorite answers ever. 
they were just teasing because they're both, of course, colleagues on ESPN. So they asked Andre, just having fun with the moment, Brad Gilbert and Darren Cahill, who was the better coach? Andre said, oh, you can't compare. They coach two different players, me. I love that. They coach two different players. Me, yeah, yeah. Steffi. The best, the best. You can't, when, you, when you're done admiring who she is as an athlete, which takes a long time, you're overwhelmed by her goodness. And once again, you've heard me say it about Andre. People will assess your greatness as an athlete, but somehow, sooner or later, you must account for your goodness. Greatness is a goodness as a person, and I promise you, the goodness as a person, and I'm not just saying this for any effect, I've never met anybody with greater goodness in her heart and mind than Steffi Graf, the best. Coming from you, man, that's an incredible thing to say. Uh, Jaden, Jaden Agassi. <laughs> my godson. He's my godson. And I look at him. He, yesterday, I, he sent me some videos because he was throwing his pitch. He comes in and trains every day. And then uh, when for, he's uh, let me stop you for one second. For our listeners, Jaden Agassi is the 18 ish uh, year old son of Steffi and Andre, who is uh, a blue chip uh, Major League Baseball prospect that's going to USC uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, and he is a pitcher. Uh, is, yes. is he a righty? Yes. He's yes, a righty. Okay. Sorry. He can sling it. He can sling it. And so he trains with me every day, strong, strong and big. He's 6'3". He's 6'3 and strong. And I look at him. He Yesterday he was pitching off the mound. So, you know, he's taking his time, the progressions. He's under great, great supervision from the right people uh, with his program uh, as, as a pitcher. And I, I promise you, Craig, I, look, I watch the video and I just tear up. I just, that's how much I love that young man. I just tear up. His, once again, his kindness, you don't, you're around him a few minutes and you, you see his mama and his daddy in his character and his goodness. And boy, you talk about good stock and good upbringing. He's, <laughs> he, he's, he's my godson. He's, now, he's my boy. Now, I read that he had a Tommy John surgery, but they say he's bad to the bone. They say this kid can really fire. He can sling it. He can sling it. And, you know, some people, and I don't know enough medically to, to weigh in on this, but Obviously, when it happened, we all, I became a, a student of it, want, wanting to learn, okay, what were, what were our circumstances about to be? Uh, what challenges might we face the most? There's actually some people who say the arm will actually be stronger with what they do, the way they do it now. 100%. Uh, and of course, that, uh, yeah, the, he had whom sure. we regard as one of the finest uh, surgeons in California. Uh, I mean, anyway, it happens he's in California. And they say it's probably stronger now than it was before. Can you hit a tennis ball? No, no, zero. I have no concept of what that would feel like. Isn't that something? Do you, you ever some- pick up a racket and just go mess no. around? And no, no. <laughs> no. Do you have a no. tennis racket? Do you own a tennis no. racket? <laughs> I want one, but I, <laughs> I want one, but I don't have one. I mean, I look at that thing now. One thing I do when I look, of course, somebody like Andre. We all know. I happen to be. I've heard so many times. Some consider him the greatest returner of all time, right? I'm, I'm not sure there, you know, you'd get a whole lot of, of argument from anybody. So I'm blown away because there's times in the gym that if there's a tennis ball here from one of our athletes practicing 
and it's on the ground in my gym. So they'll toss it to me because I say, let me put that away. They'll toss it to me. They do this and I can, I, I, I don't know how to react. I don't know. How, I, don't know how, I can't catch it. I don't know what to do. And then I realized that this man can take a tennis ball that's coming with spin or a hundred, whatever miles an hour coming through. Not only can he actually see it and hit it, but actually he can actually put it in a pretty good place. He can put it where he wants it to go. So no, no, that's a skill that I admire so greatly. And Craig, I will say this, the level is on the rise of athleticism. They're going to have to. There's so much money that these athletes can make and they're seeing now. When you look at baseball now, look at the power. Obviously we all know the McGuire, Sosa, Bonds, Times, and we kind of know all, all that whole thing. When, it, when the smoke cleared, we were still all left with that imprint of power, right? The power. You look when a guy like Mike Trout is considered maybe the best, best baseball player, and then you look at him, that's a strong man. Then you look at basketball, and of course, LeBron, that's a strong man. Then you start looking at the other sports and say, wait a minute, power is coming. Power's on the way, on the way here more greatly than ever. And that's when it's a little bit of a caution to all athletes now. Yeah, the physicality in our sport, what these guys and men and women can do with a racket is about to, I think, raise the bar one more time. Just last two questions. Your favorite tournament? It has to be the Australian Open. Favorite has, I, love, Sorry. I love the US Open, but it has to be the Australian Open. Favorite city? New York, man. New York. That's there's just something about that that's pretty pretty hard to beat. Your best moment in tennis. Is there one just one absolute knock it out of the park moment? I hate to say this, but winning the French. We needed that, Craig. <laughs> we needed that. Neither Andre and I would ever come close to admitting it along the way. But Craig, it felt so good. June 6, 1999. Goodness. Yeah. By the way, so that, man, you're consistent because you said it when we you said the same thing in the documentary. Uh, you know, I think we made that 12 years ago. So yeah, 12, right, 13 yeah. years ago. No, it's just still the French. Yeah. What can you? How can you describe it? But what would have happened if we had fallen short? All those things make it such a, an intense drama. And my boy did it, man. My boy's out there balling, and my boy's doing it. That was not going to get away. And it looked like it might, it was not going to. So, yeah, that was a moment that I'll never forget. How much I was crying, how much I still cry thinking about it. And seeing him with clay all over that special, amazing body of his. And just me looking at him and saying, you did it, boy. You did it. Man, you did it. You, you climbed that mountain and enjoy it the rest of the way. Enjoy the view from the top because you, you worked to get there. Let's move into our fifth and final set. This is the king of the court. If you okay. could be the king of tennis and make a change in the sport, could be anything. Could be a, a rule. It could be a dimensions of the court. Whatever you could be, without any aggravation, if you could make a change, what would it be? Oh, that's a great one. Unfortunately, it comes down to I like the fact, believe it or not. I like the fact that it's been as, as it's been with the no coaching. I would love to see these guys get coaching only because it would now add another dimension to the battle. Player against player, coach against coach. You, to me, I love seeing, for example, 
Bill Belichick go against, let's say, Andy Reid? What's going to – because one guy, right, it's going to go – something's going to go down. I love seeing in, in basketball the great minds say, okay, timeout. Whenever it calls timeout, I can't wait to see what happens from that timeout. There's 11 seconds left, the timeout. I come out of my seat saying, okay, this is going to be good because one coach is not players against players only. It's coach against coach. So I would love to see player against player and then coach against coach, literally their courtside saying, let's go. Here's what you're going to do. This is what I think he's going to try to do against you. Get ready for this and then do that. I would love that. Wow, Gil Reyes with the uh, pro coaching <laughs> stance. That's, that's, right. that's, right. that's cool, man. Yeah, Listen, next time you see the Belichicks or anybody or on the basketball courts or anybody, anytime you see these strategies play out, just remember that how much how great that would be to see the players have their coach. And I probably wouldn't want them to sit down. Coach stand next to them, kind of like a timeout, and stand up and then go ball out. Let's see, let's see who had the best play. Brother, last but not least, um, you know, we're living in some very um, uncertain and scary times. Do you have any interesting advice for, <laughs> for the world? Well, we all know now that there are no answers. We all know that because everyone's feeling what they're feeling and what's going on. But if I could, within myself here, start from the inside out. You just start from the inside out. I loving ourselves our families and then our friends and then have that just kind of grow from there it's tough to work the other way around because there's going to be those that don't get it that don't get you that don't agree with you and that's okay we don't have to agree we don't i just think it's something okay just okay i tip my hat to you i don't agree with you but i tip my hat to you i i understand there's there's things that many things that i understand and feel great about with which i don't agree but as long as I understand, I can live with that. And so, yeah, the everything that's going on and starting with the virus, we were all confused, weren't we, with this virus? And we still are with what's going on. And then, of course, what's going on everywhere else. It's I just, I just can't help but think when we cross paths and we see the goodness in people, it's there. There's goodness in people. So everybody just kind of kind of back it up a little bit. Start with your, your own family, your own friends. And then every day, just kind of like, what were those things uh, before they would just spawn out, connect a little more and a little more, just pull one more person in and, and let's go. Those, there was a time I remember the hippies in my day, the protests were, hey, peace, I'm peace. They weren't always peaceful, but it was peace. And peace is a pretty cool thing. And I think it's out there somewhere. And I have enough faith in us as, as human beings that the answer is not too far away. Hey, man, and maybe what you said a lot earlier about listening more. People, we yeah. got to listen more yeah. Is, yeah, okay. is, is probably uh, some words to live by, too. Listen more. Yeah, I love, I love that. I feel so good when I listen. I love it. Listen, Gil, um, uh, I'm glad we were finally able to rock the mic. I'm glad we were able to talk. Um, <laughs> thank sure. you very much. Uh, you know, please tell everyone hello and um, have a terrific uh, weekend. You too, Craig. You're special along the journey. You have a very special place in our in our story. I send you a fist bump here and a Thank big you, hug. Brother. <laughs> and a big hug. I appreciate it. Uh, Hope to see you soon, Craig. Gil Reyes, you are released. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ciao Thanks, for now. Sir. All right. All right. Okay. Thank you. Okay. 
Huge thank you to Gil Reyes. I'd like to thank Sergio Tacchini. See what they're doing at SergioTacchini.com. And use my code CRAIG30 in all caps at checkout. And the new Quarantine Classic t-shirts have arrived in white and Terabat 2. The shirts are a throwback to the junior shirts we would get when we were kids. They're selling like hotcakes. They're cool. If you're interested, shoot me a message. Max Loeb edited the show. Our music is by Brian Senti. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.